Bible with you, open up to the uh, Gospel of John, chapter 7. So we ended John chapter 6 last time we were together, and uh, we're going to kick off John chapter 7 this morning. I'll go ahead and tell you, we're not going to get through everything there in your notes, but we'll see how far we get, probably just the first point this morning, as we're excited about reading a little bit about Christ and the Feast of Booths. Christ and the Feast of Booths. And so in order to just kind of give us an overarching feeling of really getting into chapter 7, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, John chapter 7, 1 through 13, but we're only going to be uh, looking at verses 1 through 5 uh, together this morning. So Christ and the Feast of Booths, John chapter 7, let's start looking here at verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, and we pray that you would allow us to understand this text of Scripture in John chapter 7 about the timing of Jesus coming to Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths. Lord, we have much we're interested in, we have much we want to learn, and we want to live out what we learned this morning in our lives as we dedicate each and every day to you, knowing that you are our God, and that we are your people, and we look to Christ now to teach us and instruct us by his example and through the word of God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, every once in a while, it's good just to kind of take a break from uh, looking throughout verse by verse throughout the chapters in the, uh, the Gospel of John and just kind of take a big picture view of what this gospel is all about. Uh, you know, a lot of times if my kids come into the room, if I am watching like a football game or something, they might, they might just ask the simple question, Dad, what side are we cheering for? Are we cheering for red team or the blue team? And in a moment like that, they're not really interested in the name of the coach or the name of the players or even what stadium they're playing in. They just want to know who we're cheering for. And this morning's kind of a sermon like that as far as this introduction. The idea is, who are we cheering for? We're cheering for Jesus. We want to be reminded this morning of the main point of this Gospel of John. And so as we look at the Gospel of John, I just want to remind you about a couple of things. I want to remind you about the big picture of this glorious Gospel. The Gospel of John is set apart. It is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the synoptic Gospels because they all give you a similar view from the same perspective. They follow kind of a chronological life of the life and ministry of Jesus. And despite their individual emphases, the synoptic Gospels describe many of the same events which are not recorded in John. 
John, on the other hand, draws mainly upon the events and the discourses that are not found in the other three Gospels. And he uses these, uh, these things to prove to his readers that Jesus is the Son of God. So basically, why is the Gospel of John written? It's written to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, he is a man, but he's also fully God. And John teaches us how Jesus is the Word who came to earth, and how Jesus is the Word who came to earth and was made flesh, and how He is the eternal Son of God who was born to die. Jesus was God's Son. Jesus was God's sacrifice for human sin. And while John was most certainly familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and probably even read them, for whatever reason, he believed it best to write his own account. And there's many things that we've learned so far in our study of John that you won't find in the Synoptic Gospels. For example, the prologue of John chapter 1 describing Christ's preexistence, or John chapter 2, Christ's first miracle of turning the water into wine. Or John chapter 3, Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus explaining what it means to be born again. Or John chapter 4, and Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well of Samaria. Or John chapter 5, and Jesus healing the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. Or John chapter 6, Jesus teaching on how he is the bread of life. So there's many things included in John that you won't find in the synoptics, and the theme verse of this gospel would be found at the very end. If you want to look at John chapter 20, just by way of reminder, this is the theme verse of the gospel of John, John chapter 20, verse 31. And here he writes this, these, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the whole point of the book, that Jesus is the Christ. He wants you to believe. And so throughout the Gospel of John, he uses the word believe over and over and over. And that word belief is like a a, a committed trust. It's like having faith in Christ alone that that saves us. And and John not only talks a lot about believing, 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 but he also talks a lot about loving, loving, loving. In fact, John is known as the apostle of love. And he wrote more about love than any other writer of the New Testament. It was John who wrote, for God so loved love the world that he gave his only son. It was John who wrote when Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It was John who wrote, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And even though John emphasized God's love, God's love for the world and God's love for the elect and God's transforming love that loved us first and the the love that we ought to have for one another as Christians. While, While there's so much in this gospel about love, there's also the fact that Jesus faced a world of hate. Jesus faced enormous difficulties, unprecedented persecution. He he faced heartbreaking betrayal. In fact, you may have forgotten that we're in the middle of the outline of the gospel of John in chapters 5 through 12. The heading for that part of the outline of the book is the opposition to the Son of God. So here we are in chapter 7, seeing how there's great opposition to Jesus. He's here to love us. He's here to call us out of darkness into light. He's here to show us the way. He is the Lamb of God, and yet he was opposed again and again and again and again. And so what I want us to see here in chapter 7 is I'm going to give you in this sermon, this is kind of like a part one, we'll have to do part two, Lord willing, next week, but I want to give you three lessons that we can learn from Jesus as he heads to the Feast of Booths. 
Okay, so he's going to head into Jerusalem, the Feast of Booths, and there's three lessons we can learn from this chapter, and particularly verses 1 through 13. In the first heading, this is the only one we'll get to today out of those three, is number one, a hardness in the nature of man. We can be reminded this morning that though Jesus taught us about love, and though he sacrificed his own life for the, for the forgiveness of sins for those who would repent and believe, there is a hard heartedness in the nature in the nature of man. In fact, your first subpoint says this, the Jews who wanted to kill Jesus. The Jews who wanted to kill Jesus. We're going to see here in verse 1, it says after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now notice how the chapter starts off by saying after this. And after this is a, is a marker of time. And he's saying that basically after everything that we've learned in chapter 6, when Jesus taught the bread of life sermon, when he said, I am the bread of life, who, he who comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then Jesus taught, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink, and whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And we talked about how that's a picture of the atonement that Christ death and his burial and his resurrection, that his body and blood, even as we take communion later this service, in the service is what is necessary for one to be truly saved. And then we read at the end of chapter 6 how many of the disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a hard saying, for who can listen to it? I mean, if we have to be all in with Christ and eat of his body and drink of his blood and everything has to be all about him, I'm out. And many of the fair-weather disciples left And that's when Jesus looked at the 12 and he said, how about you guys? Are you guys staying with me or are you going to leave? And it was Peter who said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Well, that's where we ended in chapter six. And from that point, we now enter into chapter seven. And so when he says after this, that's everything in chapter six. And then it says, Jesus went about into Galilee. Now, we know that phrase, he went about into Galilee, and then he talks of next about going down to the Feast of Booths. There's a time period of about six months. You wouldn't know that from just looking at John, because it seems like it just, the next thing is the Feast of Booths, but there's actually six months of ministry, of Jesus' Galilean ministry, that we read about in the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that happened during that time. And during that time, Jesus traveled the length of Galilee from Tyre to Sidon, from the northwest of Galilee to the Decapolis in the southeast. And during that time, he performed many miracles, including healing, casting out of demons, and feeding the 4,000. And most of these six months, though he was doing some ministry, he was also focusing his time on his disciples. He's focusing on spending quality time with the 12. And it's interesting, in John chapter 6, there's a huge crowd that was there at the feeding of the 5,000 and the I am the bread of life sermon, but he only gives them two days. And after those two days, the rest of the six-month period before he heads down to the Feast of Booths is a time when he focuses on the 12 disciples. And this shows us that Jesus Christ had an enormous commitment to discipleship. You see, Jesus had the conviction of not spending a little bit of time with a lot of people, but rather spending a lot of time with a little bit of people. That's what discipleship's all about. Discipleship isn't necessarily about you being able to properly impact every person in the city, but it is about you impacting those in your sphere of influence 
Discipleship is teaching, and it is instructing, and it is correcting. But discipleship is also living, and it's loving, and it's laughing together. Discipleship, I would say, is shared time and shared experiences, all for the glory of God. Shared time, shared experiences, all for the glory of God. And discipleship starts in your house. It starts, husbands, if you're married this morning, between you and your wife. Your first disciple, if you are a Christian today, is to talk to your wife about the Word of God, to encourage her, to build her up, to read the Word of God together, to grow together as a picture in your marriage of Christ and His love for the church. And your second responsibility is to pour that same teaching into your children, whether they be young or whether they be teenagers or whether they be at university. Your goal is to say, kids, we're going to be reminded about the love of Christ. Yes, we have a preacher. Yes, you have a master's Bible college. But you as a mom and dad should be focusing on discipling your own kids. You may say, well, I'm single. I'm, I'm not married. How does that look in my life? Well, that looks by, by you just being with the body of Christ. Jesus himself said that when his brothers and, and his sisters and his mom came, he said, he said, you are my mother and my brothers. The focus is on the church. And so you need to be spending time in the church being blessed by relationships where you can be being discipled. And I'm saying all of this just to say that the idea here that we don't see in John 7 is that Jesus spent a lot of time in investing in his disciples. And I just want to make sure we don't miss that. I hope that we will always be a church that's known for discipleship, a church that says, you know what? We love our teachers, but we have a focus as families on discipling one another in the grace and in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what Jesus is focusing on here. And yet we see in verse one, he would not go to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So he's spending time in Galilee, he's discipling the disciples, he's doing various miracles, there's a feast of booths that he's supposed to get to, and yet he is not necessarily wanting to just rush down there because everybody in Judea hates his guts. They want to kill him. They've already decided as soon as he comes down for the feast of booths, we're going to string him up on a cross. Jerusalem was the center of the Jewish faith. It had all the scholars, it had all the well-known teachers, it had everybody that knew anything about Judaism that was there in Jerusalem. And so Jesus knew when he left Galilee, where he was a little bit more welcomed, even though it might have been superficial, that when he went down to Jerusalem, they wanted to kill him. And so he decided he wasn't going to go just yet. And so what we read here is that basically sin had taken over these Jewish uh, leaders' hearts. I mean, can you imagine, of all the leaders in the church had such a hatred for a man of God that they wanted to kill him. They actually want to commit murder of the Lord Jesus Christ because sin had ruined their lives. You see, it was just all a show. It was all about externals. It was all about them having the power, them calling the shots. And, and, and they ran the Jewish religion with a tight fist, and now they're out for blood. Forget their commitment to Yahweh. Their only commitment was to their own power, their own control, and their own success. And Jesus was getting in the way. So they decided, we're going to kill him when he comes. And that's what's driving their motives, as sin had now taken over their hearts. And by the way, that's exactly how sin works, isn't it? Sin gets us mad. And sin gets us greedy. And sin causes us to be envious we become so green with envy that we become worse 
than the Grinch who stole Christmas. And it just kind of seeps in and pours in, and we want to destroy anything that gets us in the way of us getting that relationship where we want it to be, or that job that we want to have, or that house, or that car, or that, that way my life is going. And anything gets in the way, it just, it just begins to be something we just run right over. And what we're saying here this morning is sin is alive in each one of us. You may be here and you're a Christian, and if so, you have a new nature, praise God. But there's sin creeping at your door. And James 1, 14 and 15 says it this way, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's where all sin ends. It ends with death, separation between you and God. And this is what they want to do to Jesus. They want to actually bring him to a place of physical death. Sin always leads to death. And so that's what's going on in verse 1. Wrapped up verse 6, seeing what's going on in uh, and, and uh, verse 1 here about his ministry in Galilee, he's not quite ready to go down to Jerusalem. And in verse 2 we read, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. And so the second little subpoint here is the, the feasts that pointed to Jesus. And what I want to just take some time here, this is really the meat of our sermon, so we're just going to spend most of our time right here talking about the Feast of Booths that would be held in Jerusalem and why Jesus didn't want to initially go, and then when he went, what he said when he got there. And so we, we see really in the Bible, in the Old Testament, there's three feasts. One of these is the Feast of Booths. It's the third of three feasts. And so let's turn to our Old Testament, if we can, back to the book of Exodus. And I want to show you where the Bible teaches through the pen of Moses how there ought to be three feasts observed. And I want to show you how those feasts point to Christ And I want to show you what Christ says at the Feast of Booths in particular that makes it worthy of our time together to focus on this this morning. So Exodus chapter 23, Exodus chapter 23 and verse 14, here's where we read about the three feasts. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. So God is saying through Moses, hey, three times a year you need to observe this feast. Here's the first one. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. It's the same thing as Passover. They happen literally one day apart. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days. And at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. The second feast, you shall keep the feast of harvest, or the feast, uh, excuse me, of harvest of the first fruits. So this is the second feast, we'll read more about it in just a moment, of your labor and what you sow in the field. Third feast, you shall keep the feast of ingathering, which is also the feast of booths, at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. So feast two and three are both harvest feasts. One of them is harvesting grain, which is planted in the winter, grows in the winter, is harvested in the spring. The second feast is harvesting grapes and olives, and produce, and that would have been in the fall, and that's the Feast of Ingathering in Exodus 23, or what we're calling the Feast of Booths. All the same thing. You'll see it here in the notes. Let's take a a closer look now that you've seen the three introduced to you. Let's look at each one individually. Number one, your next blank, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread, same thing as Passover. It was to happen in March or in April. If you'll turn with me to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 23, uh, I believe that you'll see here what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is all about. Leviticus chapter 23, starting in verse 4, 
These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day, that would be the very next day of the same month, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. And on the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. All right, what's this all about? This feast, this, this first feast that we're looking at, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was to remind the Israelites of two things. One, Passover. Two, how they made unleavened bread. You remember the story of Passover. The Israelites were in Egypt as slaves, building the pyramids and other things in ancient Egypt. And while they were in there, they were, they were held hostage for 430 years. Moses was grown up in that environment, went into the wilderness, came back to be the deliverer. On the 10th plague, he was going, the, the, the death angel was going to kill the firstborn of every child. Unless Israel was instructed to kill a lamb and spread that blood over the doorpost of your house, the death angel would pass over your house, your life would be spared, and everybody who did not have the blood of the lamb across their door facing would be killed. On that night, Pharaoh's firstborn died. He was so upset about it, he told Moses, you may leave, get out of my face, out of my country, I've had enough. So Moses leaves, they didn't have time to leave, Uh, they didn't have much time, which is why they were to make unleavened bread. So the idea behind leaven is that it takes time to rise. If you're a baker, you cook, you put yeast in it, or at least you get a culture, and it takes a little bit more time for it to raise in the oven. So the idea with this is like, this has happened so fast, kind of unbelievable. They were stuck there for 430 years. And yet one single night, when this last thing happens, they're gone. It's a reminder in our life sometimes. You may be stuck in a bad place year after year after year, but when God shows up, he can deliver you in an instant. In one second, you can be set free of all of your sin and all of your bondage, and you don't even have time to wait around. So that's why he had them make unleavened bread. Another thought behind unleavened bread is that leaven represents sin. And so as they would practice this feast, they would take all the leaven out, removing all the sin. So they had pure bread, if you will, that would just be the bread without the leaven, which could represent sin. So there's just a couple of thoughts behind this idea of the feast of unleavened bread, the Passover, unleavened bread feast observed together. That was the first of the three feasts. Now the second feast. Second feast they were to keep was the feast of Pentecost, also referred to as the feast of harvest or the feast of weeks. The reason it's called the Feast of Harvester Weeks is that's when they're harvesting the grain, and it was to happen seven weeks after the first feast of the Passover. So Pentecost is 50, so seven weeks, seven times seven is 49, plus a year, plus one year. So that's where they get 50 from. So this was a special feast. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 16, Deuteronomy chapter 16, and you'll see a little bit of a description here of, of how we get the Pentecost and he says this, Deuteronomy 16.9, this is when Moses is giving the second law, reminding them of all this stuff he taught in Exodus and Leviticus right before they enter in the promised land. Deuteronomy 16.9, you shall count seven weeks, begin to count seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put into the standing grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks, that's Pentecost, you shall keep the feast of weeks 
to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant and the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow who are among you in the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Now notice, as we just read about that in Deuteronomy 16, it's all inclusive. It includes everybody, the mamas and the daddies and the children and the Levite and the sojourners and any guests they have in their house. Everybody is to follow and observe this particular feast and they're to remember, to remember who they were as a slave. But the point of the Feast of Pentecost in the Old Testament was also about God sustaining them through the wilderness. So if the first feast, the the feast that we looked at of Passover was about the deliverance out of Egypt, the second feast was a little bit more of the sustaining grace of God during their wandering in the wilderness until they come into the promised land. And so, in, in fact, in the Leviticus portion describing Pentecost, it talked about leaving food for the sojourner where, where you would, you know, they would reap the harvest of the field, but they wouldn't reap right up into the edge, but they would leave the corners of the field uh, for the poor people to be able to partake. This is all what is given here at this time of the Feast of Pentecost, right? So now let's look up the feast that we're most interested in today, the Feast of Booths. So the Feast of Passover or Unleavened Bread, the Feast then of Pentecost, and now we're looking at the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Ingathering, and it would happen at the end of the year. So it's going to happen in September, October, where they're not harvesting grain, which was in the spring, but now they're harvesting grapes, olives, and other produce. Now listen, according to Josephus, well-known Roman historian, the Feast of Booths was by far the most popular of the three feasts. It would have been shortly after Yom Kippur, or the idea of the Day of Atonement, So serious stuff had been taken care of. Now they're just ready to party. They are ready to give thanks to God for all of his many blessings. It's harvest time. And so they turned it into a grand festival. And what was to happen at this time is that Israel would rejoice about the ingathering of the produce of the land. By far the most joyous feast of the year. This feast was not even celebrated until they came into the promised land. So once they came into the promised land is when it was practiced. This feast was a time to celebrate the divine guidance of God through the wilderness and into the land of Canaan and everywhere around Jerusalem, in the street and in the square and even on the roofs of the houses, booths or tabernacles were built with branches and with leaves. And it was a, this huge festival where they're just giving thanks to while they were saying, for a while we were temporary dwelling through the wilderness, but now we've come in and we've built not only a tabernacle for our God, we've built a temple for God. So now we're in a permanent place in the land, but this is to remind us of how we got here. In fact, if you'll turn with me to Nehemiah, you'll see how this feast, the Feast of Booths, was practiced even after the exile when Israel was in, the, in uh, Babylon for 70 years, they come back from Babylon, back into Israel. And listen to what Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 13 says about the Feast of Booths. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths. 
So it wasn't like they were just having Woodstock on their own, all right? God commanded them, you guys need to get in some booths to be reminded of what you've come through and where I've brought you. So even if you have a house in Jerusalem, I want you up on the roof, and I want you out in the yard, and I want you to build some, u- some booths, some forts, as we called it growing up. My brother and I would chop down some trees out in the woods behind our house and build these forts, and we thought we were awesome, right? So that's what he's telling the people to do so they could just be reminded. And so they're building these booths, and they're during the feast of the seventh month, Nehemiah 8:15, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all the towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square of the gate of Ephraim and all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to the day that the people of Israel had not done so, and there was a very great rejoicing. In other words, they weren't able to practice this for 70 years in exile. Now they are. They're excited about practicing it even after the exile. Verse 18, and day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Listen to what Leviticus 23 also talks about harvesting the produce of the land, take on the first day of the fruit of the splendid trees, and it talks about rejoicing before the Lord God during this Feast of Booths. And so here's what we're learning. In the Old Testament, the Feast of Booths was to help people remember how they lived and how God provided for them and how God brought them into the promised land. And it was also to be a reminder that the booths and the tabernacles were just temporary homes. And when God brought them into the promised land, they made more permanent dwellings. Now, you may be thinking, you may be thinking, and I see some of you are sleeping, but that's all right. Uh, You may be thinking, Adam, come on. This is not an Old Testament class. I am not a master's university student. This is not Old Testament survey. Like, what are you talking about? Why are we stuck in all these feasts? Well, these feasts still have an impact on the new covenant. We are not old covenant Christians. We are new covenant Christians. And every single one of these three feasts has a point and a purpose and is mentioned in the New Testament of your Bible to point to Christ. Let me see if I can say it this way. Your next heading there in your notes says, all three feasts generically were to, number one, here's the point, commemorate God's faithfulness in the past. You could take all three of these feasts and say in some way they all three do this. What do they do? They commemorate. They cause us to remember God's faithfulness in the past. Listen to me. God is always faithful to his people. He never abandoned them. He never forsook them. It might have felt like it for 430 years, but they were always on God's mind. And in the same way in your life, you may think, you know, I think God's forgotten about me. I'm still single. I don't have a child yet. I don't have a job yet. I'm in a bad place with my health. I I don't know what's going on. I don't know where God's at. He's right here. He's right here with you. And he's saying through these feasts, be reminded. Be reminded of the goodness and the greatness of God. He knows your hurt. He knows your pain. And he's faithful. God knows your bondage. And he knows your predicament. And he's faithful. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. His love never fails. His mercies are new every morning. Remember God's faithfulness. Remember, 
You were lost. You were dying in your sin. You were addicted to some something in your life. And God has set you free. He's brought you out of Egypt. Be, be thankful. This morning, remember that's what He's done, and that's what these three feasts remind us of. They commemorate, they help us remember God's faithfulness in our past, but you know what else they do? Number two, all three of these feasts perpetuate God's grace in the present. They remind us as they are practicing the feast, and as we're here studying the feast this morning, we can be reminded that God's grace sustains us. God's grace is sufficient for today. These feasts remind us that, that though we are weak, in Him we are strong. These feasts are to remind us that it is the joy of the Lord which is our strength. These feasts are to remind us that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. These feasts all point us, third, to anticipate the Messiah's coming in the future to anticipate the Messiah's coming in the future. In the Old Testament, these feasts were to help us, uh, the Jews, remember what God had done in delivering the Israelites from Egypt. But in a more important way, these feasts were to help them look forward to the first advent of Christ. These are all shadows pointing to the Messiah so that when the Messiah came, he would be recognized by his people and he is actually the fulfillment of what the feasts point to. Let me show you how. Each feast specifically pointed to something that Christ fulfilled. Number one, what did the Passover show us? The Passover showed us Christ's sacrifice on the cross. End of the day, it's not about Moses delivering Israel from Egypt. That's not what life is about. We don't gather together and study that just to say, yay, yay, Moses whooped up on Pharaoh and now that's my life. No, no, our life is about, we were also stuck in a greater sin of unbelief and we were held bondage and we couldn't get out until the great deliverer, Jesus Christ, freed us to have new life in him. And the Passover is all about Christ's sacrifice. And that's why the crucifixion happened at the feast of Passover. In the New Testament, you probably well know, in Matthew 6, 26 17, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city and to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. And it was that night that Judas, one of the 12, who was a devil himself, left the Passover, and he went and he brought the rulers into the Garden of Gethsemane that night, and Jesus was abducted and crucified the very next morning, which was right in the middle of Passover. Why? Because Christ is showing. All of that was pointing to me. It's now happening so that you will look to me, the look to Christ as the sacrifice for our sin. It said most clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And so he's reminding us, even in the New Testament, don't forget the Passover. Don't forget that feast. That's what Christ did. That's why Christ came. Christ is the Passover lamb. That points to Christ's crucifixion. He is the lamb. He is the sacrifice. He is the propitiation of our sins. He is our substitute. He causes the wrath of God to pass over us and to be placed on Christ 
on the cross so that you could be free forever. That's why I like studying the Passover. It's not just an Old Testament ritual. It has New Testament implication, and so does Pentecost. Number two, how does Pentecost fulfilled in New Testament times? Pentecost, as you well know, is about Christ's promise in giving the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have taught you. So Jesus Christ promised that the Holy Spirit would come after the resurrection. Christ was on earth for about 40 days. Then the ascension happened. Ten days after that was the feast of what? Pentecost. And here we are where the Holy Spirit comes in power. Acts 2, verse 1, New Testament fulfillment of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it lifted the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What an amazing thing. We understand here that Pentecost is fulfilled with Christ's promise of the Holy Spirit, who now indwells every believer who's in Christ. This is a reminder of God sustaining us. Just like Pentecost was a reminder of of the sustenance of God, God sustaining them throughout the wilderness, the Holy Spirit sustains us throughout this life. You, You got saved when you came out of Egypt, spiritually speaking, but now you live every day based on the power of the Spirit of the living God. We're talking here about the Holy Ghost, part of the Trinity, One God, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has given us power over sin. And the Holy Spirit has given us power over the flesh. And the Holy Spirit has given us power over our hard-hearted nature. We need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives in order to live a life that honors God. We can't do it on our own. We can't make ourselves any better. It must be all of God. It must be all of Christ. It must be all of the Holy Spirit working in our lives day after day after day after day because here's the newsflash. We're not in the promised land yet. Ultimately, we're not in heaven yet. And so as we're being sustained every day, it's the Spirit's power which was celebrated in the Old Testament pointing to the New Testament which we can still look at and gain and garner great help and encouragement from as we in Christ are filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't let Acts 2 just be a distraction about the charismatic movement. Acts 2 is a wonderful historical event where people did speak in tongues. Absolutely. In real languages that showed the glory of Christ and all pointed to the authenticity of the message of the gospel. And yet today, Pentecostals focus not on the main thing. It's almost like the gospels jumped over and they focus on miracles and who can speak in tongues and give prophecies. And all of that stuff is a distraction from what the Feast of Pentecost really was about. It's about Jesus. And it's about him living through the Holy Spirit in the hearts and lives of his people. And now we get to the third feast, the Feast of Booths, which is, how is it used in the New Testament? This is the only place it's used right here. John chapter 7, verse 2. The only place you'll see it in the New Testament. So it's a New Testament thing because it's mentioned here in this gospel. And the Feast of Booths has a future look at Christ's kingdom, Christ's kingdom to be set up in the future. 
to be set up in the future. Now, the Feast of Booths was at hand as a reminder of God's faithfulness in the past, His sustaining grace in the present, and there is also an anticipation of the coming Messiah. Let me say two other things about the Feast of Booths that I haven't told you yet. There's two other things about the Feast of Booths that make it so powerful. One is this. The Feast of Booths was also marked by two celebrations that existed around water and light. First, there was a ceremony of the outpouring of water where water was drawn from the Pool of Siloam there in Jerusalem, and this was a commemoration of the refreshing stream which came forth miraculously out of the rock at Meribah when Moses hit the rock the first time with God's blessing and the water came out. And when that happened, this is a, 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 a celebration that they would do at this Feast of Booths doing a water ritual to remind them of that event. And this is significant because later in the chapter, when Jesus does show up, he says this in John 7, 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So what we're seeing is it's at the Feast of Booths where they're celebrating this special celebration about water and light that Jesus capitalizes on that and basically says, I'm the living water. I'm right here. This whole feast of booths is pointing to me and I'm fulfilling it in your midst because I am the living water. Come and drink and have your fill. And in addition to this celebration around water was a second celebration around light. And this, this was an illumination of the inner court of the temple where the light of the grand candelabra, so you've seen a candelabra in Jewish decor, candles, seven candles, they're all lit inside the Holy of Holies to remind us that God is light. And more importantly, to remind us of the pillar of fire which led Israel at nighttime. So that's why they have a candelabra. God is light. He was the pillar of fire of light to lead us out at night. And then Jesus says what? In John 8, 12, still at this feast, he says, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So this is why this is important to understand Jesus and the Feast of Booths. There's three different, uh, three different um, dinners. What are my dinners? Three different um, feasts. Sorry, I couldn't get that word. Three different feasts. The Feast of Booths being almost the most incredible, the most joyous, the most clear, focusing on Messiah. And here's the sad thing about it: they didn't see it. The Jews want to kill him. His brothers don't even believe in him. Verse five. The rest of them don't see him for who he is, and here he is fulfilling that. And here's a reminder to us, you may be here this morning, and you don't see Christ. You may have been raised in the establishment. You, you may be at the master's university. You could have been raised in, in, in a Christian homeschool setting. You, you could be at a great Christian school, but it doesn't matter, because these people who were experts in the law didn't see it. His own half-brothers didn't see it. And yet Christ is coming, and the reason he comes during this Feast of Booths is to proclaim who he is. And so this morning, I just want to invite you to take a look at Christ. Look at who he is. He is the light of the world. He is the living water. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Everything around us, just like these uh, booths, these feasts, uh, all of the, the different ones are to point to Christ. That's just how the world is. The sun points to Christ. The moon points to Christ. The stars point to Christ. The oceans point to Christ. 
All of creation screams out that there is a God. More importantly, special revelation of the Word of God shows us exactly who Christ is. He is the Son of the living God. He died on a cross. He was buried in the grave. He was raised from the dead so that He could provide new life for you. Are you here this morning? Are you listening? God may be calling you right now out of Egypt and into the light of Jesus Christ. He's calling you out of bondage, and he's saying, here I am. I am the living water. I am the light of the world. If you're here this morning, and you're a believer, you just ought to be encouraged. You ought to be like, man, that's the best Bible study I've done in a long time, seeing how those feasts point me to Christ. Next week, I'm going to show you how in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 16 through 19, shows us that the Feast of Booths will be practiced again in the millennial kingdom. That ought to bring you back next week, hopefully. So let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity just to dive in, just really a beginning of John chapter 7. So much to see about Christ, the Feast of Booths, the idea of his sermon about being the, uh, the living water and being the light of the world. God, we're excited about Christ this morning. We're excited about how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together in perfect harmony, all to point to Christ. Lord, forgive us for being distracted sometimes, even in our Bible study, by not seeing Christ and getting so caught up in descriptions and details, which all do point to you. But today we want to make sure we're focusing on the main thing. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus being the Son of God. It's about Jesus's death and his resurrection. And it's about life that is offered to all who will repent and believe. And so do a special work of grace in our hearts this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.